Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast, season two, episode two. Uh, this is Brandon Ray. Along with me is Levi Sowers. Hello. Uh, today is going to be the first of two episodes dedicated to blind veterans. Uh, overall, the VA estimates that over 130,000 vets are legally blind and over a million vets have low vision. And 64% of service members with a traumatic brain injury also have vision problems. Yeah, that's definitely something you'll get out of today's episode is that uh, how debilitating it is from for a veteran to go from uh, fully functionally visually to uh, low vision or no vision at all. And uh, Dan Standage, who we'll be talking with today, is a legally blind Marine veteran who lost his eyesight while serving in Okinawa. After his injury, he was able to go on to get his bachelor's degree and master's degree, where he ultimately started working at the Student Veterans of America, uh, where he's now the director uh, for disability and education. And I met Dan uh, in Pittsburgh when I went to a VA meeting and there were some veteran organizations there and Dan and I decided to have a beer at the hotel bar after the meeting and we sat down and chat, chatted for a while and I found his story really interesting and uh, uh, one beer turned into three beers and we decided to have him on the podcast and he has a really fantastic story He's a really resilient human being who um, I immediately connected with, and I thought he was really, really, really cool. Uh, and, and he really, I think in this episode, strikes home the idea of going from complete normal state of vision to almost no vision overnight, uh, and how strikingly uh, uh, painful that can be for the person that it happens to, how much resiliency he had to have to overcome that, and uh, before we get going here with this episode, I'd like to apologize for the crappy audio. It was the first time we did a over-the-phone interview, and we weren't quite used to it yet. So there's a little bit of stuff cutting out in the beginning, but it does smooth out. And you may have to turn up your sound a little bit. But thanks for listening, as always, and uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Best First Podcast. Today we have uh, with us Dan Standage. Uh, he was in the Marine Corps for 10 years, and um, he is a legally blind veteran um, who received his injury during his time in the Marine Corps. And uh, welcome, Dan. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, where did you grow up at? Where are you from? Uh, originally, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, okay. and I spent my entire, basically my entire childhood there and adopted to the Marines. Um, and then I came back uh, to Arizona after I was. Huh. And so, why, what made you join the Marine Corps? Um, I think I was lost more than anything else. I, uh, really, I think I was looking for uh, kind of a tribe. I really had the childhood, then kind of looked at it now. I was just left alone a lot. Yeah. And nobody really showed me anything. I mean, I worked from after school as a replacement for, so I wasn't a very good student, um, which is the place I work at now. But um, the uh, 
so he, my dad was a mechanic, mm-hmm. and the the idea of us going to his shop after school was to keep us out of trouble. And the side kind of benefit was I I kind of learned like mechanical engineering in a in a non like fictional way. Yeah, just just by experience, started off like cleaning the floors and cleaning the tool. Got to send to change the old doing tune up just doing heavier in but it was a chip and so that felt always felt familiar to me mm-hmm. in school I just didn't have, you know sit still listen to what teachers had to say um, other than that I didn't have any like any mental growing up and, and so like when I signed school and I barely made it in my teeth I didn't know I didn't I didn't even think college was a thing I could do, but I didn't have really, I didn't have anything that had prepared me for beyond that. And fortunately, there was a, a Marine recruiter that was just looking for recruits, and he said, and that's kind of the story. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, that's like, it's kind of a familiar story that we've started to hear from from a lot of veterans who uh, joined the military is that like they kind of like didn't really know what to do and so they just like were like hey I'm gonna go join the military um, and I actually really think it's pretty cool because it's it's a huge dedication actually from a for a human being to um, give themselves to one's country I think yeah but you know the funny thing is like when I hear people say hey thanks for your service I'm like I, I did what I did because I was like it was a selfish thing on my part <laughs> yeah. I, like it didn't feel like I had any other place to go. And, and I knew if I just stayed in the little hometown I was in, I was going to, like, not amount to anything. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to figure it out on my own. Um, and so, like, when I hear, like, hey, thanks for your service, I'm like, I feel like I'm accepting it on behalf of veterans for their own particular reason. And I it, I don't know, it's weird. But, like, somebody came up to me one time and said, hey, thanks for your sacrifice. I'm like... Oh, that makes a lot better sense. Like, you know, there there have been some things I sacrificed as a parent or or otherwise um, to be in the military. So to me, like, that's the more impactful way of saying mm. is thanking them for their sacrifice, whatever, whatever that sacrifice might be, because that's more individualized. You know, one thing that's interesting that I've heard from a lot of us is they feel uncomfortable when people thank them. Is that something you um, feel or? Oh, yeah. Like and again, I think it's like when they say, "Hey, thanks for your service." I feel like I'm I'm being thanked for everybody else's as well. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it can be awkward sometimes, and like I try to think, you know, when I you know I've become much more cognizant since I started working for the VA about how I interact with veterans and and the importance uh, they they mean to our country, and it's you know I like to to say thank you to them sometimes too, and um. You know, it's it, it can be awkward. Yeah. <laughs> That's find, very much a thing. Finding the right words can be a bit tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So you you joined the Marine Corps, and uh, where did you go to basic at? So I went to boot camp over in uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. Yeah. So I, w- I was a West Coast Marine. That's the same place my cousin went. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's a good place. I liked it. Yeah, he liked it too. I, I like it. Yeah, I, like, I liked it after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it while you were there, right? No, I did. I did appreciate it while I was there. Looking, at, I've got kids now. I got one. My oldest son, he's already gone through boot camp, and he's been in for four years now. Mm. And he went to San Diego as well. And so, okay. being able to go back for the graduation, like 
like a child going like looking around the old neighborhood that you grew up in. Yeah. That's kind of what it was like. <laughs> Um, so after you got out of boot camp, were you, did you go to immediately to Okinawa or? Mm, no. So the Marines go through this thing called, uh, Marine combat training, uh-huh. which is just like a month long. Um, it's a more intensive version of the, like the tactics and weapons training that you receive in boot camp. And it's just a, you actually go to the school of infantry, um, with all the other grunts. And it's kind of a, for all Marines, they go through it. And for the infantry types, they go to uh, the school of infantry and they skip marine combat training. So for all the non-infantry types, they get marine combat training. For all the infantry types, they actually go to the infantry school and learn their trade. Oh, cool. Um, So that was a month. That was in Camp Pendleton. Um, And then I went to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, to Courthouse Bay, which is like the – it's basically on the backside where the – where the back gate is, is at on Camp Lejeune, and Lejeune is pretty pretty good size, um, and it's just a, it's a very remote little base for combat engineers. Mm-hmm. When I got in, I th- actually thought I was going to be doing computer related work, and so when they said, "Hey, you're going to engineer school," I'm like, "Yes," mm-hmm. so I'll be like a you know a software engineer or something. And we pulled up in in the middle of the night, and all I saw was this like 1920s version of a of a bulldozer yeah sitting out front and says welcome to engineer school i'm like Uh-oh. oh no <laughs> that engineer school man i got duped <laughs> so, so i went there um and the way that the marine corps and i don't know if the other services do this as well but they try to get all the reservists uh in, in and out of school as quickly as they can because it just it costs them more money to keep them on active duty Mm-hmm. And so we just happened to have a big flood of reservists come through, and we got put. Me and a, a few other guys got kept getting pushed back classes, so we we had to stay there two months longer than what we normally would. Because I think the course is only like a month long anyway. Um, to do landing to be a landing support specialist. So while I was there waiting, um, I actually worked for the the head of the base there, the colonel, and because. At the same time, the Marine Corps was was transitioning from paper over to computers, mm-hmm. and they just didn't have anybody that knew computers at all. What year was yeah, it? Well, uh, this was ninety one. Oh wow. 90, 91, early ninety two. Yeah. Okay. Cool. About the advent so, of personal computer. Yeah, they were they were just looking for anybody that was comfortable using a computer. I'm like, oh man, I use computers, you know, since I was in seventh grade. Like, I'm really comfortable with them. I don't know a whole lot about them. You know, like I don't know like the programming side of it. But, like, I'm very comfortable doing anything with it. And so the colonel there was like, hey, if when you go to your next unit, if you just tell them that you know how to use a computer, they'll snap you up. I'm like, oh, okay. And so that's what I did. I showed up at my next unit over in Okinawa, Japan, when I got, when I got my permanent duty station. And I turned in my orders and I said, hey, I know how to use a computer. And the guy started laughing at me. And I thought, oh, no, I completely screwed up. And... The guy's like, hey, just show up here tomorrow. Just go go back to your room. Like, just get get out of here. I'm like, uh, okay. So I thought, oh, no. Like, the whole night I'm, like, sweating. Like, I have really messed up. And I show up the next day, and the little warrant officer that was there that was running the, the shop, he said, hey, welcome aboard. You're going to be working for us now. <laughs> yeah, that's just all. That's just always how it worked. I, like, I, I, was, I was good enough, and the, the timing was right. 
That's cool. That yeah. They, yeah, they always needed an admin, an admin guy. Huh. So you um, are legally blind, um, I believe, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, um, I met you in D.C. Uh, at, a, at a meeting, at a VA meeting. And, you know, how you received this injury, uh, if you will, if you want to call it an injury, during during your time in the service. How did that come to be? Yeah, it was a, it was a peacetime thing. I was like, when it was going on, I was getting headaches, and I couldn't figure out why I was getting headaches. And so I'd go to the doctors. Uh, the doctors would always check the same things. They would check the blood pressure. They'd take your temperature. Uh, they would ask you, you know, his, historical questions, see if you had somehow, you know, bumped my head or, you know, whatever. Uh, and then they would just give me, like, Motrin to help with the headaches. And so the, the headaches got worse and worse over time. And they started doing x-rays and MRIs and CAT scans. They were checking for a brain tumor. Yeah. And long story short, but they, the last time I, the last time there that I saw a doctor was up in the emergency room who I happened to threaten because he was trying to give me more meds. And I'd had a, this headache for like 12 days straight. And so he didn't like being threatened. So he sent me up to the psych ward mm. in Camp Lejeune. And it's like, get up there and I'm like, I've hit the low point in my life. Like now they think I'm crazy. And it was the doctor that was doing the admission exam to basically put the, the straight jacket on me. Yeah. Was the one that figured it out. Like he was the one that looked in the back of my eyes and said, Oh my God, like, like all these blood vessels are exploded. That's like not normal. Let's get you down. Let's check for meningitis. And they did a spinal tap and all the, the headache went away. So what, what caused this? Um, so it was a, a reaction to a vaccine that I received over in Okinawa. Oh, wow. the Japanese, yeah, the Japanese encephalitis vaccine. And the vaccine, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, yeah, yeah. People get vaccines all the time. Absolutely. And some people are just more sensitive. So, like, when you go to get your flu vaccine, they always ask you, hey, you know, do you have an allergy to eggs? Yeah. And so, like, if you didn't know that you had some type of weird allergy to something that was in the Japanese encephalitis vaccine, you don't know what you don't know. And so you just get it because you're in the military and you just do what they tell you to do anyway. Yeah. And... I just didn't connect the two pieces together because the headaches just kind of started off very slow oh. and they increased over time. Jeez. And so, yeah, so just as a young kid, I just dealt with the headaches until I couldn't deal with it anymore. That's interesting. Uh, Dan, I'm, I'm actually, uh, uh, allergic to the, uh, or had a reaction to the pertussis vaccine, the whooping cough vaccine when I was younger. Uh, so I'm counting my blessings right now that I didn't have, uh, that, uh, that bad of a reaction. Yeah, and it's weird because there, you know, if you do some research for civilians, there's this thing called the vaccine injury table that the pharmaceuticals have set up in case something does happen uh, to anybody. The only the only exemption is military because the VA takes care of, of anything that happens on the on the DoD side. Mm-hmm. So it's not was it was this not something they looked they really looked for then? Is that no, I mean they were they they were just doing routine medicine, yeah. and so you know they again they they were looking for because everything that I was complaining about was what a, what happens when somebody gets a brain tumor. Yeah, they start getting headaches and their vision starts going. Yeah, so when and you when you when you started noticing your vision going, like what was that? Can you describe that a little bit? Is that 
Um, so I wasn't focused in on the vision. That was the funny thing. So I was focused in on the just the massive amount of pain that was going on uh-huh. from the from the headache. And then the other kind of weird thing that was happening was my ears would, would never equalize. Like when I would breathe in, my ears would like pop in. And then when I breathe out, they would pop out because there was like very little room up inside my head. Yeah. Um, and I know that sounds weird to a Marine saying there's not very much room up in their head. So people are going to get a good laugh over that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I was I was essentially running out of room because like the fluid inside my head was building up and pushing on everything inside there, and actually it was pushing the brain down into the spinal the spinal column. Oh man, that's crazy. That's bad. Yeah. So I wasn't paying attention to the vision loss. Who uh, who was though were the op- the ophthalmologists that were there mm-hmm. that were like checking the eyes because that's a very it's a very common thing when you have high head pressure. Mm-hmm. is the vision goes and it, what, uh, it pushes the eyeball forward and the optic nerve stays in place. And then over time, what will happen is basically it just disconnects the, the optic nerve from the back of the eye. So is that yeah. what happened to you? Um, a little bit. They, uh, and I forget the exact, I think it's called papilledema. Uh-huh. It's like it's like a discupping effect of the the optic nerve as it starts pulling away. Uh-huh. Mine, they caught it before it got really, really bad. Mm-hmm. But it basically just choked out the blood supply for the the optic nerves. And so, and so, how much vision did you lose? So in my left eye, I don't have any vision. Um, the eye is still intact. Like most people can't tell that any, anything is going on uh-huh. visually. Um, my right eye, I've got about twenty five percent left on that, and so I'm about twenty. If I could actually see twenty feet away, I would be twenty two hundred. But because I can't see 20 feet away, like I can't make out any, any – I could see stuff move 20 feet away. I just can't see any kind of detail mm-hmm. uh, up until about five feet. Oh, and wow. then even and based on the size and the, the contrast and a bunch of different things, I may not may or not, may not be able to see something. So you went in to the psych ward, got diagnosed with this um, intense intracranial pressure, and then you come out and you're – were you immediately – were you immediately – you know, was your vision immediately gone, or did it did it slowly digress over time? No, that was the funny thing. So, like they, um, so they they actually sent me up to um, to Walter Reed. So they they sent me by an ambulance, drove me clear up to to Walter Reed up in D.C., which I think is like a it's like eight hours by ambulance because they can't speed or do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get up there. They contract out with a doctor, a civilian doctor, that does the special surgery where they cut through the white of the eye, yeah. and they they cut the little sheath that surrounds the optic nerve, and they just put like like a shark. They just put like a couple of slits in this little sheath on the outside of it, and it drains all that um, the intracranial fluid out of that out, away from the, the optic nerve. Yeah. So it decompresses the optic nerve. Well, after that, my eye healed back, so. It's weird because, like, when they put stitches in the eye, you have no idea how bad that hurts. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it doesn't actually hurt, hurt. It just it feels like somebody dumped a, a bag of sand in your eyes. And you're you're and awake so, during this process? Uh, no, not for that. Okay. that. But yeah, you wake up and your just your eyes like they just do horrible stuff to your eyelids to hold them open. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so your eye is just kind of like just kind of throbbing, but 
the grease that they put in your eye was like amazing. So anyway, after the stitches <laughs> reabsorb and that goes away, like I would, I think I was like twenty thirty in my eyes when I got done with with the surgeries and everything. I was I was actually had better eyesight. I oddly enough, um, I was always color deficient, so I couldn't see, I couldn't distinguish between red and green mm-hmm. beforehand. So that was an existing thing. Um, and then over time, the symptoms came back. So the little cuts they put in the optic, uh, the optic nerve sheet, they actually healed back again. The headaches never came back. So there was like no warning for the next go around. Oh. I just started noticing that I couldn't read things. Like you would wake up and you, your eyes are kind of blurry, and then they kind of snap back in. Yeah. One day I just woke up and I was like, okay, blurry eyesight, blurry eyesight. Uh-oh, this isn't getting any better. And then I went back, and they, they redid the surgeries again. And then I was good to go, and, like, nothing changed. And then it happened again, no headaches by that time. It was too far gone. It had done so much damage. Oh, man. That the doctor, he went to go do the surgeries again. And he's like, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore after this. And I woke up after that surgery. And my left eye, I didn't have any vision at all. Mm. Oh, geez. So what what was that like? <laughs> Can you, I, I mean, that's kind of a weird question, I know. But, like, you wake up and you don't have vision in your left eye. Um, it's oddly traumatic because you don't, you don't expect it. Um, and for me, it was just, it it was like a coming to grips moment (laughs) where I was like, this is the best it's ever going to be. Yeah. I I, I just remember sitting at the edge of my bed, looking down and literally crying, like almost forcing myself to cry. Um, and going, this is it. Like, this is, it's never going to get any better. Whereas before then, I was like, huh, you know, doctors made it good, the, you know, they made it happen, they fixed it, life was going to be good. For some reason, I knew at that point that it wasn't going to be better. Mm-hmm. And so I was like kind of going, I was like kind of forcing myself through the stages of grief, which is impossible to do, but I was trying my best. And mm-hmm. yeah, I was just trying to get to the sad part as quickly as I could. Yeah. And the sad part doesn't go away as quickly as you like it to. And so you just kind of have to deal with it. Yeah, of course. So, were you still in the Marine Corps when this when this happened? I assume. Well, up up to that point, I was. Yeah. I had been out. Not even a year, when that that final when that final thing happened. Oh wow! Okay. So the, I mean, the symptoms were, the symptoms were progressing. The moment that the the last surgery stopped, it was still progressing in the background. Uh-huh. I just didn't realize it because, again, like the headaches weren't there any yeah. longer. Yeah, I'm not sure what happens when they when they start cutting in uh, to your eye or doing whatever that they it somehow there's some disconnect that happens, like they cut through a nerve or something, and I just was not getting the headaches. I wasn't getting the the sense that I that I was hurting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So did you enter the VA? So so. <laughs> Yeah, so you wake up that morning and you're you're blind in your left eye and you have 25% vision in your right eye. Did you immediately did you start seeing the VA at that point? No, that was okay. So that's a funny thing too. It's like, so 9/11 happened. Mm-hmm. This when I woke up and and you know had basically lost my eyesight for the final time. Um, that was July of 2002. Mm-hmm. 
And so we're less than a year out from, you know, basically our country being at war. And I, I was thinking, well, crap, what am I going to do with the rest of my life here? Because, like, I'm stuck. I can't drive now. Can't go to the can't go get groceries. Got two little boys at home. How do I cook for them? Like, I'm, I'm thinking of all these different things. I wasn't thinking about, like, hey, there's a, the VA is this great place that takes care of veterans after they get out. Because mm-hmm. my thought was, oh, you had to be, like, combat wounded for the VA, for you to use the VA. Yeah. And fortunately, there was a guy that I worked for. Um, so I was a sergeant. He was a, a master gunnery sergeant. So I was E5. He was E9. Mm-hmm. Great guy. He was, like, my second father. Um very much took care of me, mentored me, did everything. He called me up one day and he said, hey, when was the last time you ate? I'm like, um, and he goes, that's too long. He goes, grab your medical records. I'm, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you down and we're going to file a claim. And I'm like, All right, we can't do that. And he's like, why not? He's like, I said, well, you know, a lot of our guys are, you know, going off to work and they're getting killed, and they're coming back in, you know, body bag. And, like, this stupid thing happened to me, and it wasn't combat related. He's like, it doesn't matter. He goes, like, it happened while you were in. It happened as a result of your military service. Like, this is what the VA does is take care of veterans. Yeah. So he took me down to one of the veteran service organizations down in D.C., filed a claim. Uh, 18 months later is when, they, when the VA adjudicated the claim and approved it and but th- during all that time frame i didn't realize mm-hmm. that i could actually go down to the va and get like treatment mm-hmm. like i so i was still married at the time to active spouse so i was still getting care through tricare oh, i was okay. just going to i was just going to walter reed so nobody ever explained the connection between when you get out go to the va so that conversation never happened, except mm-hmm. that one time with my friend. And so I didn't know really that the VA even existed up until that point. Why do you think it? Do you think that's a lack of communication on the powers that be, or do you think that it is up to the the, the person to to figure that out? Um, I don't think it's up to the person. Again, like, I, I look back at my childhood, um, and nobody nobody really mentoring me. Nobody just sitting down and go, hey, what you're feeling right now is sadness or anger or whatever. Let me explain what that is and how you get past it, you know, and, and kind of, like, walking you through it. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people in the military are the same way. Like, they they didn't have that growing up. They were kind of ignored as a, as a child. They were told to sit quiet in class and just listen. And they didn't have an opportunity to really ask some hard questions or questions that they had that were important to them as, as kids. Sure. And so in the military, um, you get this wonderful opportunity where you get, you're, you're always around a mentor. You're always around somebody that's teaching you. And when you're, and when you're not, you're the person that's teaching somebody else. And so you're always constantly passing down things, uh, learning through experience uh, as well as guidance and so I think that there's a breakdown there because when you're in the military everybody's focused in on doing military related things when you get ready to transition out you don't have 
a mentor that's helping you transition out necessarily. You might have somebody that sits in front of a class that's teaching you how to get out, but you don't have an old guy that just retired that comes back in and, and walks you through the process. Yeah. If that, so, like, no, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the part that's lacking because you get everybody that's in the military focused in all the all the military things. The moment that you make the decision to get out, you're kind of alone. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, sort of a parallel to my career um, is not, you know, I didn't get injured, obviously, but you're, you're, I think what you're really trying to hone in on here is mentorship. And, um, you know, it's really important academics that you have good mentorship. Um, it'll often foster a good career in a young scientist, and it sounds sort of like that's what you're talking about that, that happens in the military someone there to sort of guide you through. I mean, you, you definitely have to make it on your own. There's no doubt about that. You have to work hard, but it's really good to have someone who has done it before, who you can talk to and ask questions to and guide you and seek advice from, right? Right. I mean, look at look at the difference between your bachelor's degree and your PhD. Yeah. Like, when you have a PhD, you, you actually have a faculty member assigned to you yep. who is likely in that same career field, like, is actually helping you out and introducing you to people um, and bringing you closer to the things and, and, and reviewing your stuff and looking at your stuff um, is a liaison to the committee that is going to ultimately do a dissertation for you. Like, the whole thing. Yeah. When you're an undergrad, you don't have that that level of um, of attention. Yeah, you're correct. And, yeah, I mean, and think about how much more you learn as a, as a PhD. I mean, you do learn a lot as you stumble along as, a, as an undergrad. But then it's very much more focused when you actually have somebody that's, that's saying, hey, do this, don't do that, and here's why. Well, let me show you what it looks like when you do it wrong. And then let me show you what, it, what it's supposed to look like when you do it right. So Dan, and it takes, a, a lot of, it takes a lot of the garbage out of the way for you to just be able to get things done. That's a really good yeah. description, yeah. <laughs> taking the garbage out of the way. That's a, yeah, they sort, of, they sort of allow you to see the, you know, the the what the forest through the trees yeah sort of thing, right? uh, yeah yeah I mean it's it, and again like the place that I work it we there there's a certain sect of people that are very comfortable doing doing work when there's never been a path blazed in front of them it's like the, the I call it the pioneer mindset sure because you can't even travel the like an old dirt bumpy road because the road hasn't even been built. You're the guy that's building the road, so that way somebody can come in behind you, pave the road, um, and then later on build the buildings around the road. So like you're only responsible for this one little tiny thing. But there's so many people that aren't comfortable with that. They have to be told everything what to do. Yeah. And they they can't operate day to day in an environment where they they don't have anybody that's over the top of them giving them guidance all the time. So Dan, is this what got you into your current line of work, uh, uh, the student, uh, the student veterans of America? I stumbled in on it. Oh, I see. So I, during my undergrad, when I was at the University of Arizona, um, I was so because I couldn't drive, and the place that we lived at, there was no bus route to it. I wound up just my wife would drop me off at school at at the campus because she works at the VA. Mm-hmm. She would drop me off and I would, whether I had one class or four classes that day, I would just stay on campus all day long and I would just take my food, my lunch with me 
uh, camp out in front of the library, eat my lunch, go back in. If I had to go to the bathroom, I'd pack up all my stuff, go to the bathroom and unpack everything. And it was just an ordeal. Um, I wound up needing some help from, from disability services. And they're, they're like, hey, why don't you just come here and hang out? Like we've got like a lounge that you could, you know, set all your stuff down. Nobody's going to come in here and steal it. You go wherever you want to on campus and come back here. Um, and I was like, this is a really cool little setup. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why don't the veterans have something like this? And so I started doing that, not even realizing that there was other veterans on campus. Like I didn't even think like there was even another one there. And then I, I got tapped on the shoulder to go to Washington, D.C. with our campus president to get involved in the student veteran kind of movement came back and started building a veteran resource center and then built a veterans club through the organization that I work for now. Cool. Uh, did my undergrad, did my, uh, my master's degree, and then I couldn't find a job. And then one of my friends that actually worked at the, the work, he calls me up one day. He's like, Hey, do you want a job? I think we just created one that, and I think you're probably a, the ideal fit for it based on your, everything that you got going on in your life. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so I've been working here for almost five years now. Nice. So when you um, got involved with the VA, how did they? How were they able to help you or not help you? Um, they were super helpful. So the the place that I that that I'm involved with more than anything else is the, the Blind Rehab Center. Uh-huh. So the Blind Rehab Center, they. All their services and everything are tailored specifically to veterans that have lost their eyesight. In fact, it's to the families as well, so like the caregiver that has to support that, that individual. Um, so there's a, there's a specific person, a case manager that works in blind rehab called the VIST coordinator. Uh-huh. And it stands for the Visual Impairment Specialist Team, V-I-S-T, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually going to be talking to the head of VIST here. Um, Keith Queen is his name at Iowa. Oh, perfect. And uh, we're gonna, you're going to be part of that whole episode on, on blind veterans and, and uh, what services the VA offers them. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, so this coordinator called me up one day, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just sitting at home, you know, got my kids off to school, and I'm just kind of sitting around, kind of doing a whole lot of nothing on my computer. He's like, well, do you ever think about coming in for blind rehab services? I'm like, no, what's that? And so he does this nice little explanation of what they do. He's like, just come on down. I'll show you around. And so I had my mom drive me down to Tucson, and guy showed me around. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I like this. And so it's just an inpatient. Um, you know, you, you go there. They check you in. They put a wristband on your wrist. I stayed there, I think, 30 days. And they just, they essentially teach you all the basic skills to, to be independent, to live independently. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, so I did you, had, did had you a, expect to stay 30 days? Um, no, and there's there's no, like, there's no set number of days. It's, it's all individualized. So, yeah. like, I could have been there three months or I could have been there a week, depending on, on what I needed. But, I like, I hadn't received blind rehab, and I was so new to the blindness anyway. Yeah. That I was still that I was very much adjusting to everything to how to how to safely negotiate obstacles and you know trip hazards and different things like that, as well as you know how do I cook 
you know, like how do you, how do you go out on the grill and cook a piece of meat without, you know, killing everybody because you get, you know, trichinosis or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to ask you, I, you know, everybody thinks that, that going blind uh, to the degree that you did would be super life-changing, and obviously that's, that's the case for someone who had full vision before. Um, how did it affect your life? What, what was the major consequence of this? Man, I can't drive. <laughs> That's a, yeah. I, that, that is my number one gripe, is I can't drive. Um, there's so much independence that's lost. So I'm going to tell you the, I'm gonna tell you the bad side of, of going blind. Yeah. Just, just to acknowledge people's curiosity, like going blind does suck. However, going blind is not the end of the world. And on top of that, going blind has opened so many doors I would never have gone in on my own. So like the the part the part that sucks is you like you've had the vision before. You know what things look like. You you know how to operate a very specific way based on like I can go I used to be able to go down to a grocery store and glance down the aisle and see what you know and make a decision based on a glance. Now I have to like physically walk down the aisle and memorize so many things, like using my using my mind to memorize things that most people don't even consider memorizing, like the number of steps or the approximate distance for something, but then having to come up on something, look at it, and go, okay, that's not what I'm looking for, and pull up the next can of something, and it, it's just not very efficient way of doing things, and so you you have to learn, you have to learn, and you over time get comfortable with the idea that the things that you used to be able to do, you can't do anymore. You just have to do them differently. Mm. And so being able to hop in the car anytime I wanted to go do something or go find out something or, or be curious about something, I can't do that anymore. I've always got to be asking somebody. So that, that kind of screws with me a little bit. Still to this day, it does. Um, not being able to do that quick glance and scan things, they have to be on top of something to constantly ask people for help. That's just not in my, my wheelhouse. But I have to be comfortable with it to be yeah. able to do it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But, I, you know, the big thing is just staying busy. Like, the importance of employment and having a hobby um, can be overstated. If you, don't have, if you don't have a hobby in your life and you don't have a, 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 some type of career aspiration, so whether you're going through school or you're volunteering at some place or you're just working at some place that doesn't pay any high in money but you're being socialized, those are critically important things. Like, especially with the, the, the rate of suicide that, that's, that's happening now in society, it's so much more important to, to not just be idle. Yeah. To actually be involved in something, to have a purpose and to be to to be doing something actively every day that gets you out of bed, that drives you to something that holds you to a particular standard, like that is the that's the magic formula, in my opinion. It's funny, like uh, my grandfather. Uh, so I grew up pretty rural, and he's got he's between seventy five and eighty right now. And every two weeks, he still stacks uh, two thousand pounds of feed and fifty pounds feed bags, and is adamant about how all his friends he know that that he knows um 
that became idle or stopped working or just doing something, uh, that's how they start to like kind of waste away. So he's adamant about, at least in terms of like retirement, that he's never going to retire and it, in fact keeps him healthy and going. So it's kind of cool hearing like the corollary that you're talking about uh, here in terms of having something to be involved in and not being idle is pretty cool. Well, and my my schooling is in rehab, is in rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, you, there's different flavors of rehabilitation. Like, there's the, for prisoners, there's rehabilitation uh, in that regard, which is, you lock somebody up in prison, like, you're not rehabilitating them at all. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the worst place to be. You have to be at your worst to, to survive. And to survive, you're never going to get out because you have to be your worst, the worst form of yourself. So to me, that's not re- that's not true rehabilitation. That's mm-hmm. that's a punitive system. Versus rehab is when again you, you're trying to do the same. You're trying to do the same task, but just in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so rehab, even for like older people, uh, when you age, when you age into your disability, like the older people that continue to do the crossword puzzle, the older people that they live in an active community and they go hang out with their friends and they go eat a healthy meal with their friends and they do different activities together. Like that's the thing that's going to keep them going because then they have a purpose in their relationship. They have a relationship with their friends. They have a relationship with whatever's going on. They have a hobby that keeps their mind busy. That even if it's a simple crossword puzzle, it's the ones that sit on the couch and go, lost the eyesight. Now I can't read anymore. Knowing that there's like things like audiobooks out there, you could listen to your. Do you think it's to the nerves? Do you think it can be difficult to take that first step? Very much so, and I think that it requires. For me, it requires you to see how good off you really have it. So, like when I went to the blind rehab center, I was the youngest guy there by a couple generations. Like they used to call me the kid. I was like thirty something years old, <laughs> and I would get knocks at the door at ten o'clock at night, and they're like, "Hey, kid." Hey, what's this internet email thing I keep hearing about? I'm like, oh, come on in. Let me show you my. Let me show you the computer. Guy has never seen a computer before. I'm like, what did you used to do? He's like, oh, I used. To, I was a mailman. I used to work for the post. The post office. I'm like, okay, what? What did you? What can't you do anymore that you used to like to do? He's like, read. Read the newspaper. I'm like, here. Let me pull it up. So just pull up like Arizona Republic, and then highlighted some text and had it start reading. Like. When you realize that you just helped somebody out, that they thought that their life had ended, and then you show them, hey, there's a different way of just doing what you used to like to do. Yeah. Like, that opens your world up. You realize how helpless people really are when they can't even, when they don't even realize that what they used to be able to do and what they can do now is, like, only a hand's distance away, but yet in their mind, it was completely out of sight. Well, what you it, was, it, was, it was over the corner of the, uh, of the globe in their mind, and for me, I was like, it's right here sitting in front of us right now. Well, you just, and so, sorry, yeah, sorry. when you realize how bad off that you have it, and then you see somebody else that thinks that they have it bad off, and you're able to show them a different way of doing it, Absolutely. Like, you, I think Brandon was you, just going to ask you that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so Dan, uh, one last topic with you. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your role at Student Veterans of America and a little bit about Student Veterans of America and what, what they do? Yeah, so um, so the place I work at 
Um, I'm the, the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion. And the, the, the most simple way I can explain what the org is about, it's about reconnecting the fraternal order that you once had in the military um, and connecting it back on when you meet up at a college campus, when you're using the GI Bill. Um, but then it, it also extends out into employment. So it's like this two through and beyond higher education thing. Yeah. And it's about continuing that fraternal order from the military into school and then beyond into employment as you become a leader within uh, the place that you work. That's really cool. So so what, what advantages do, uh, if any, do student veterans offer over a normal student? Um, I'm going to say a lot, but to, to break it down to it, into the, the simplest bit is veterans have life experience. So they've gone through high school, they've moved on. Instead of going out and get, going to college right away, they go out and into the military, they learn a trade. Um, they oftentimes have a security clearance, so they're, they're trustworthy. Um, they usually have troops under them, so they, they're good managers or supervisors. Uh, they're very responsible. They know how to wake up on time. They know how to get the job done. They don't, they don't leave work until the job is done. And so there's a lot of soft skills that they, that they develop in the military that they take with them. Um, and then when they enter school, because they've got the GI Bill, they're not, they're focused more on the, the academics rather than how they're going to pay their bill. And yeah, the, you know, paying the bills is always a stressor, sure. but when you don't have that sitting in front of you all, all the time and it's, your, and, and it's your education, you tend to be a little bit more specific about what you want to do with it um, and you're a little bit more serious with it. Huh, cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I think you know, the more I found out about Student Veterans of America, I think it's a pretty sweet organization. Um, anyway, Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. Um, uh, really appreciate your time and, and effort and your, um, you know, as you were saying earlier, your sacrifice to the country. I yeah. Think it's pretty cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.